This episode is brought to you by Haymakers Community Engagement Consultants. If you run a business or nonprofit working to make the world a better place, then visit wemakehay.com to see how Haymakers can help. This episode is also sponsored by RuralOrganizing.org. RuralOrganizing.org has been equipping and empowering rural changemakers since 2012. Visit RuralOrganizing.org for more information. Okay, okay, keep looking up! Okay. This is Flyover Folk, a podcast exploring the progressive arts, culture, and politics of rural America. Only 81% of Native Americans have access to any kind of valid ID to vote as compared to 88% of their white of their white counterparts. Hi, and welcome to the next episode of Flyover Folk, where we explore the progressive arts, culture, and politics of rural America. I'm Matt Hildreth. Today's guest is Dr. Hannah Walker. She's a professor at Rutgers University and an expert on uh, on something that we're going to talk a lot about today, and that's voter suppression, specifically voter suppression uh, among communities of color in rural America, specifically North Dakota, and what's happening there with the voter suppression tactics uh, on the reservations. So be sure to stick around. So could you talk maybe just generally about some of the barriers that you see, um, not just in North Dakota or with um, you know indigenous communities, but a but more across the the board, just for people that aren't really familiar with, um, you know, some of the barriers to voting to just kind of give a sense about what you're talking about. Because I know, like, for some people, it's just you, you, you walk down the street to the local school and you, you know, wait a couple minutes in line and pull out your driver's license and, and you know, vote. Um, but that's not the case for a lot of people. Could you talk about some of those barriers? Yeah, sure. I mean... Sure, I can talk about some of those barriers. I do want to point out, this is something that I think about a lot, um, and what I want to point out is that even the scenario that you just laid out had, like, has its own set of barriers that people have to overcome, right? So you said, like, for some people, they just walk down to their local school and you pull out your driver's license, you wait a couple of minutes, and then you're able to vote. But, you know, there are a lot of assumption, assumptions that go into that scenario. The assu- one assumption is that you have a valid driver's license, right? And so that is where voter ID kind of intersects with this broader conversation. And we'll, we'll unpack that a lot, I think, in particular as we talk about voter ID in North Carolina. But, like, so it assumes that you have a driver's license. And it assumes that your driver's license meets all the requirements of what uh, poll workers are looking for in terms of a valid piece of ID. And it assumes that you were able to get time off of work to be able to go to the polling station, right? Um, and so um, we, te- we tend to think of voting as, an, as a pretty easy, low barrier activity, but, you know, it's really not. And so other things that can complicate whether or not you're able to vote um, can be like the distance from where you live or where you work to your nearest polling station, the hours that your nearest polling station is open are open, whether or not you're registered to vote, if you register, if you are registered to vote, if you vet registered, you know, within the time frame. So I live in New Jersey, and in New Jersey, you have to be registered at least a couple of weeks before the election. And um, I didn't know that. And last year, I was able to vote this year, but last year I, I couldn't I couldn't vote because I registered too close to the election, and that's just knowledge that I didn't have. Um, so, you know. There are just um, a whole host of barriers that people have to overcome in order to be able to actually get to the get to the ballot box. 
um, and and actually cast a ballot on election day. Um, that that's really helpful, and and um, so so um, I think kind of just the general idea you get from like a high school civics class is that. Um, that everybody wants everybody to vote. <laughs> um, and, and so I think that that's, you know, uh, maybe for some people that don't come to this issue with uh, an understanding of, of the details and maybe some of the cynical politics of how, how it works, um, that, that might be, you know, that, that's kind of maybe the idea that they come to the table with. So can you talk a little bit about just in general intentional barriers um, and, and who, who would benefit from making it more difficult to vote? Sure. Yeah. Um, right. The idea that, yes, the belief that everybody wants everybody else to vote and that that's not really uh, like a partisan or normative position, but it turns out it is right. So um, yeah. So uh, politics, the way that politics has sort of worked itself out today, although this is not really new, but um, in terms of partisanship, um, it benefits Democrats who the, the Democratic Party is a bit is a big tent organization. And, you know, they uh, tend to attract a wide, a, a wide cross section, wide demographic cross section of supporters, you know, um, reaching across racial boundaries, across socioeconomic boundaries um, and so forth. And so uh, because they're a big tent, a big tent party, um, generally speaking, Democrats are in favor of more people coming to the polls, right, of more people turning out to vote. But for Republicans, their their base is shrinking. Um, and rather than being a big tent party in the way that the Democrats are, they have become a party, uh, sort of like an, that's driven by, by ideology. And, um, because their base is shrinking and they're driven by ideology, it behooves them, um, to actually in certain instances, particularly in, uh, very competitive elections at the state level, it, it is actually in their interest to try to, um, shape the electorate in ways that favor um, favor their winning. So um, in the contemporary era, what we have seen, in the contemporary era of voting, what we have seen is that Republicans engage in efforts to try to um, increase barriers to voting and Democrats tend to, tend to try to decrease barriers to voting. Now, I want to take a step back away from partisan politics and just say that, like, trying to keep people from voting is a time-honored tradition in American politics, right? So... We, when we talk about voter ID laws, we often, and in the court opinions, they've connected them to like the history of, of Jim Crow era policies that, you know, after African Americans were enfranchised, um, politicians undertook to try to keep African Americans from voting. So things like poll taxes, literacy te- tests, um, grandfather clauses, all white primaries. These are examples of historical. Um, intentional barriers that have been um, introduced to keep um, certain segments of the population from casting a vote. And so in the post um, voting, in the po- so the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965, did away with a lot of these very formal barriers. And so in the post voting rights era, um, the attempts to intentional um, ways of keeping people from the ballot box or keeping specific people from, from casting ballots um, take the form of districting and trying to um, like 
crack and pack uh, various voting blocks that are geographically oriented. Um, it comes in the way of doing things like trying to um, eliminate um, eliminate uh, voting stations um, or polling stations in certain precincts or diminish the number of voting stations in certain pre- precincts or um, eliminate the number of days that a polling station is open in specific precincts um, or, you know, so I think about, I've written about North Carolina and done some research on um, early in-person voting in North Carolina. So you may be familiar with a big lawsuit there um, around an omnibus voting voting bill that was passed in 2013 that tried to eliminate um, several weeks of early in-person voting, and in particular, tried to eliminate um, early in-person voting on Sundays, which in the black community yeah. is uh, referred to as souls to the polls, right? And so um, right. what research shows us is that black Americans disproportionately use early in-person voting and they vote and they, they vote early in-person on Sundays. And so eliminating early in-person voting on Sundays is an example of an intentional sort of attempt to keep specific populations from voting. Yeah. So it's not, it's not, it's not, I mean, in some ways it's very complicated, but in some ways it's just, you figure out how certain commit communities vote. And if they don't vote for you, you change the rules to make it harder for them to vote. Is that, is that kind of the yeah. the, the way it plays out? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So for, so for example, if, you know, if, if the goal was to make older people not vote, maybe you vote by an app or I'm, I'm trying to kind of come up with ways that like, you know, um, that it, I mean, because it's always it, it seems to be so directed towards minority populations and yeah. populations like you said that vote more with the Democrats. I'm just trying to give a sense of like what it would look like. Yeah. In well, in, in in like a more of a, you know, for, for people that come from like the white community, what it would look like if somebody was targeting their voting rights. Sure. Well, I mean, the elderly are a good example. And um we can connect that to voter ID. Like voter ID laws offer a lot of really concrete examples for how this might play itself out, right? So um, one thing with um, with uh, having a valid voter ID in some states, that piece of ID has to be unexpired. Um, but and, and the most typical type of ID, government-issued ID that people have is a driver's license. So your, your driver's license has to be unexpired. But what we know is that um, older Americans are more likely to have un- to have expired IDs. Maybe they don't drive anymore, right? Yeah. And so they still have a piece of ID that that affirms their identity, but because they they don't drive anymore, they they the they let it lapse. And so they they have a valid right. uh, they have an ID that would otherwise be valid, but it's expired. And um, vo- uh, in keeping with that, another sort of way that we might think about it is that uh, is that um, voter ID laws also sometimes in some states require that you have your current name listed on your government issued ID your and that your current and accurate name that's listed on the voter registration record but and so that disproportionately um, impacts women right and women yeah. who in particular get married and then take their husband's last name um, and so maybe right. that name doesn't match what's on the voter rolls and so now their their piece of ID isn't valid for voting Right. Or, I mean, and a driver's license is somewhat arbitrary in terms of a government ID. I mean, I can't imagine if it took a library card to vote. <laughs> I mean, if, <laughs> if people think about, like, driving is a pretty common experience for a lot of people, but, like, 
for a lot of people, it's not whether you're too old or, um, or you know, you, you, you know, it's just not easy to drive anymore. Or if you're in a city context where you have, you know, sufficient public transportation, um, like, for example, does New does like a place like New York City where a lot of people don't drive, do they require driver's licenses or does, do, do they have to kind of accommodate the, the culture of having fewer drivers? Well, um, in so voter ID laws vary from state to state. And usually those ID laws are targeted towards the local population, right? They aren't they aren't cut from the same cloth. There are certain techniques that are certain things that can be built into the law that that are designed to disenfranchise the populations in that state. Um, and also not all states have voter ID laws and they don't all have strict voter ID laws. So yeah. um, if, you can, if you'll give me just a second here, um, my, if memory serves me correct, um, North... Uh, um, New York ha- doesn't have a strict law. There's no, there is no document required to vote in New York. Um, yeah, Wh- which makes sense. I guess you could see that that people there. I mean, if all of a sudden they came in and said, "Now you have to have a driver's license," there would be thousands and thousands of people in New York City that don't drive on a regular basis, so may or may not use their driver's license. Right, and. Um, um, if you'll just give me a minute here, what I also wanted to say is that like, it's not only a driver's license that you could use to vote. That just is the most common ID that people would use to vote. Right. But like, you know, in certain states you can use, uh, you can use a student ID that you would get on a college campus. Um, and, and so that would suffice. Um, and in other states you, right. you cannot, you very explicitly cannot use a student ID, right? You can, some states you can use like a military ID or you can use, um, the card that is, uh, that you get um, that go to to access social services um, in Texas, you can use a hunting license, right? So um, it's not it's obvious it's not only um, a driver's license and the crafting of those laws and which types of IDs are acceptable speak to the populations in those states, right? Right. Or, uh, so can you talk a little bit about something that I've always wondered about? Is why do we even need to register to vote? Like, aren't we citizens? Can't we just vote? Yeah. <laughs> Is that? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, uh, I think that that question and the the sort of like outdatedness of needing to register to vote is reflected in um, laws that have been passed in a couple of states very recently. So Oregon is a good example where they just went to opt out registration. So rather than having to register to vote, you have to specifically elect to not be registered to vote, right? So um, voter registration may have served a purpose in the past, um, but in today's day, uh, in, with technological advances um, uh, and in today's climate, I think voter registration, whether or not we need voter registration is increasingly a contested question. Uh, so as long as you can prove citizenship, for example, you would be able to vote. Uh, or is that is that? I mean, because the only reason you would have to register, I can think of, is so that you can keep people from voting. And so, like if, like for example, if you don't allow felon, you know, people with a felony history in your state to vote, you would have to at some point check a database to make sure this person's eligible to vote. But if everybody's just eligible because they're a citizen of the United States, 
there's less paperwork. Right. 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 Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Um, well, okay. So one of the, the one of the you know, there's been probably two cases that have really stood out to me um, that have gotten a lot of national attention uh, over the last maybe couple of weeks and months. Um, one one is then um, the case in I think it was Garden City, Kansas, uh, where they moved the one polling uh, place out of the city away from public transportation. And then the other one was in North Dakota with the the physical um, address rules that they were trying to pass. They, you know, that really stood out to me, kind of from a rural context, because uh, the, the last town I lived in was a town of eight hundred people, and we uh, <laughs> we moved in, and the, about three days after we moved in, we said, "Where's our mailbox?" Right, and um, and. We couldn't find, like, literally, we were, like, walking around the front of the house being like, why don't we have a mailbox? We for, we never asked the realtor about this, you know, going into it. Um, but it turned out that the entire town had P.O. boxes. Yeah. Um, and so everybody had to walk the three or four blocks. I mean, the entire walking across the town was maybe 10 blocks total. But everybody had to go in every day and, you know, pick up mail at the post office. And we all, we all had, it kind of reminded me of college where we all have your little P.O. box. Yeah. Um, and, and so when I heard about this, um, what they're trying to do in North Dakota, where they're trying to require a physical address, um, I had to think, you know, like there, I, to this day, I mean, I, I, I know what our physical address was, but we never used it. And it was like a fight constantly with, um, FedEx and, you know, some of these other providers that couldn't use PO boxes and, 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 but couldn't, but we had to give a physical address and it was just the complications of, 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 um, having a PO box versus a physical address were just like an everyday annoyance. And then, you know, when I was hearing more about what they were doing in North Dakota, um, where they were kind of tying that annoyance to your ability to vote, I was, um, I was, I was, I was actually really surprised to hear that. I mean, that just seems so cynical. Um, so could you talk a little bit about what's been happening in North Dakota? Sure. Yeah. I also just want to, um, comment and tell you that, uh, that, uh, it sounds like wherever you were growing up is, is a lot like the little tiny town that I grew up in. I grew up in Washington, out in the rural, uh, rural part of Washington state, um, in a little town of 800 people. And we also, I mean, we had physical address, but we also didn't have a mailbox. Um, and the idea that you could have mail delivered directly to your home was something that took me by surprise as an adult when I, you know, moved, moved out and went on, on to live my life. Um, so, so right. So the, it, the complications that living in a rural environment introduce into all kinds of activities, um, including voting, um, are important. And so in North Dakota, what they have done is they've got one of these voter ID laws and this, the voter ID law in North Dakota is, um, unlike the, so, you know, I said that these ID laws are tailored to the populations of the states where they're written. And so unlike in other states where you actually have to have a photo on your piece of identification, um, uh, North Dakota's law actually looks um, at face value like it's not very strict. Basically, what you have to have is your name, your date of birth. It has to be unexpired. And then there's that current physical address requirement. 
where you have to have a physical address. And not only do you have to have a, an address, but it has to be physical. It cannot be a PO box. And so well, what is that about in North Dakota? Well, um, because, you know, even even in the rural community where I grew up, and I'm guessing in the rural community that you were speaking about, if you went to get your driver's license, you still had to be able, you still had to give over, uh, you had to give some type of physical address, right? That's what would be printed on your driver's license. Even if um, you, you know, primarily use a PO box to get your mail. So how does this introduce a complication into voting and who does it impact? Well, it primarily impacts the Native American population in North Dakota, right? So um, the Native American population in North Dakota I'm sorry, I'm consulting my notes here, if you'll just give me a minute. Um, about 60% of the Native American population in North Dakota um, lives on doesn't lives on a reservation. So North Dakota's population is about 5% Native American and 60% of the Native American population lives on the reservation. And so um, not only when you're living on the reservation, which Reservations in North Dakota are very, very, very rural. And um, so not only does the Postal Service not provide residential delivery to many areas on the reservation, but also many people who live on the reservation don't actually have a physical address, right? So in addition to not being able to get their mail at their house, they don't actually have a physical address. And so, um, and they might not have a, a driver's license or a non-driver um, non government-issued ID. Instead, what they might use as their primary form of, um, of ID is they might use an ID that's been issued by the tribal government. Um, but those IDs that are issued by the tribal government, because, um, because you know, most uh, individuals living on the reservation don't have a physical address, they don't print a physical address on the tribal IDs. Instead, they're more apt to use a PO box, right? Uh, because that's the address that you have. That's where you get your mail. And so for that reason, this um, requirement in North Dakota that your piece of ID um, have specifically have a physical address and not be allowed to use a PO box um, is, is pretty clearly designed to disenfranchise the, North, the Native American population there in North Dakota. So they, I mean, they really targeted that law as specific as possible because of the nature of tribal sovereignty, the idea that you can get your ID through the tribes. The tribes are reflecting the the IDs to um, to kind of match the needs of their community. A lot of the white rural folks in North Dakota would have physical addresses. Like even if they were in my situation where it's like you don't really use your physical address, you would still have one. That's right. Um, but but even the, the 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 way that the tribes have set up that you can kind of have a road – you know, somebody lives down that specific road, but you would know that they live on, you know, Elmwood Street down that way, but there's no house number on it. That's right. That's right. And and so they finely tuned the ability to um, to target or they they finely tuned the rules to target a select group that overwhelmingly votes Democratic, the Native community overwhelmingly votes Democratic in North Dakota. That's right. Yeah. And so, you know, the key thing in 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 thinking about barriers to access to the ballot box and thinking about the the sort of ways in which we might challenge those barriers 
um, is to think about the differences between between the white population and then the minority population. In this instance, the white population, the native population, and the non-native population. So, um, with the work that I do with uh, Matt Brado and Gabe Sanchez, we've actually collected some. If, if it's right that I speak about this, we um, we actually collected some data on this to try to ascertain what those differences might be in North Dakota. And so, what we found is that. Um, is that in 20, so we did this, we did this survey in 2017. So what we found is that in 2017 is that um, 81, only 81% of Native Americans have access to any kind of valid ID to vote as compared to 88% of their white, of their white counterparts. So um, they're less likely to have a valid ID. And then when you drill down on the reasons why they lack an ID and you look at the percent who have whose ID would otherwise be valid, but they don't meet the address requirements? We find that there's an eight percentage point difference there, where 18 percent of Native Americans who would otherwise have a valid ID, but it doesn't map, but it, but it lacks the proper address. Um, that's the reason. And then, as compared to 10 percent of non-natives for whom the same is true. So, so you're able to challenge in court based on the social science work that you're doing, um, the, the validity of these laws based on the fact that they impact the different people differently? is it? Can you talk a little bit about how that works? What What is the federal law that you can appeal to to say that this is wrong? And then how do you, I mean, how are, you know, how do you use social science to basically, you know, uh, defend people's rights? Sure. Um, well, so... At the federal level, what we the primary vehicle for challenging the validity of these laws is Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Um, so under Section 2 of the, so Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, you have to demonstrate that there's a that these laws have a disparate impact on um, on the minority population than they do on the white population. But the Voting Rights Act also incorporates not only racial minorities, but it incorporates language minorities as well. So um, if there were some type of requirement or some type of, uh, type of election law that um, because of the way that, you know, uh, it was administered um, such that it didn't accommodate uh, language minorities, then you could challenge um, the law on that basis as well. We typically challenge them or we participate in cases that challenge these laws based on state constitutions as well. So many states have have similar pieces of legislation that are similar to the Voting Rights Act, but that that incorporate that equal access, the right to equal access to, to voting at the state level. And so that's where we started, I think, in North Dakota is at, is at the state level. But so, so under disparate impact doctrine, you basically have to be able to show that you can, well, there are many different things that you can show, but you have to show that um, a law that based on the terms of a given law, um, the minority population would have less access to be able to vote than would their non not than would their non minority counterparts, and so um, with voter ID laws, how do we use social science um, to try to ascertain um, the disparate impact of a voter ID law on the voting population? Well, um, we use principles of um, random distribution, and we also try to we, we we try to use sampling methods that are culturally appropriate to the various. Um, minority populations that we're working with. And what we have done is we've basically taken these laws 
and seen the, and looked at the the specific requirements that um, that the laws have in terms of what your appropriate ID would look like. And so we go out and we survey people and we ask them whether or not you know you have a driver's license or you have some other type of government issued ID. And then we go through that ID with them. We ask them to take it out and. Um, tell us about what's, what their ID looks like and we take them through the requirements. The, you know, is your date of birth listed? Is the expiration date current? Um, if, if it required a photo, do, does it have a picture of you? And in the case of North Dakota, we also asked them whether or not it included a current address. And in particular, we asked if it um, included uh, a physical address. And so based on the, um, those very specific and tailored set of questions, we're able to um, come up with in uh, an estimate of the overall percentage of Native Americans in the in the given or in North Dakota who would not have access to a valid piece of ID. So then you take all of the research and all the interviews and all the data, you crunch it, you and you kind of pull it together. And then are you actually appealing to a judge or a jury? How does that whole pro- process work? Uh, yeah, it's it's the cases are usually um, uh, argued before a judge. Um, and I don't believe there are not juries involved. Um, and, uh, as far as the technical details of how the case plays itself out, I am less familiar with those details. Sure. Sure. So, so can you talk a little bit about like what, what are in addition to these, um, well, so do you, do you have a sense on what's going on in North Dakota? I know you you were kind of more involved on the, um, cr- you know, crunching the numbers and um, with the ongoing case there. But, um, you know, last I heard just from, you know, television was that the, the, the tribes were able to um, kind of revamp their um, their their IDs. And I think last I heard, like they didn't actually find that these were the the law was like a valid law, right? They just decided that well, we're just going to go forward with this election as is and sort of examine this law at some other time. Is that kind of where things stand, or do you have any updates on that? Well, it's actually been developing really, really quickly as far as these cases are concerned. So, in I think April of this year, um, the case was heard before a district court, and the district court ruled that um, the law that the law was, did have a disparate impact. And so they, um, they, so there was an injunction on the law that basically said like the voter ID law cannot be in place until the legislature rewrites it so that it's fair and equal. And then the state of North Dakota challenged that injunction at, at, in, at the appeals court level, which they did successfully. And that happened in September. And so in September, um, the state was able to get an appeals court to stay the injunction, meaning that the voter ID law would be in place for the for the November election. And then just in the last month, um, the the uh, the tribes and the tribes have um, been challenging challenging at and at the Supreme Court level and seeking relief from the Supreme Court, which they have not been able to successfully do as of yet. But I was reading an article just before we had this call that said that they were um, filing another, they were filing another petition and they were, had done that like yesterday or today. So as it currently stands, the law will be in place for the November 6th election, but the, but Native American tribes and their allies in North Dakota are doing their very best to um, get the, get the injunction 
um, back in place before November 6th. Well, that's really, you know, frustrating uh, to hear. And especially because the, especially, well, North Dakota, especially. Right. Um, the the elections are decided <laughs> with a handful of votes. Um, so when you're talking about uh, how this impacts uh, the communities that, that are, are often the strongest Democratic voters, um especially in a state like North Dakota, um, it's just, it it just, it feels so blatant and frustrating. What's your recommendation for, you know, people um, who get frustrated hearing about this, that kind of have that, um, that view towards voting that everybody should vote and we should, you know, we should sort of, as our rights as citizens (laughs) vote. Um, what, what what can they do? Where do they go to learn more about uh, voter ID laws and voter suppression and 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 all of these things that you're talking about? Where's the best kind of resource for them to go and 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 learn more about this? Oh uh, well, I think you know, if they really want to educate themselves on issues related to voter ID laws, one one really good resource is the National Conference of State Legislatures. Um, which has a comprehensive overview of voter, ide- voter identification laws across the states. Um, so if you just want to educate yourself, that's one thing that you can do. But I think um, if you're a person who, um, who like, it sounds like, like you and I still have sort of this um, naive view that more, that more turnout is better, regardless of who you're uh, voting for, right? If that's um, your perspective, there's a lot of things that you can do, I think, to help the people in your community if you happen to live in a state that has a strict voter ID law. And, you know, some of the things that you can do is you can participate in voter registration drives and you can also participate in canvassing efforts um, just to go out and mobilize people. Right. And educate them about where and when and how they can vote. Right. One thing that is happening in places like North Dakota and and um, in North Carolina around 2016 election is that the laws are changing so fast that it's hard to keep track of when you can vote and when you can't vote and whether or not you're going to be able to vote in the same place and in the same way that you voted in the last election. And um, even even here in New Jersey, I went and um, cast an early um, absentee ballot because I'm going to be traveling next week during the election. And there was a notice on the on the um, on the county board of election website that was saying there's been false information being handed out about how and when you can vote. Um, you can vote, cast a, a ballot by mail. And so, you know, you can participate in efforts in your community to both ask people to come out and vote, voter mobilization efforts, and then also educate them on how they can do that. And so if you are wondering in your own community, how is it, what are the de- the various ins and outs of how people can vote, you should go visit your county uh, election board website. Well, thanks so much. Um, I think this is a, a really... Um helpful and timely conversation. Is there anything else? um, Anything else that we should know about this? I think I just, uh, as a, like a final parting note, the only thing that I want to re reiterate and emphasize, uh, you know, our, our conversation focused on barriers to voting in the form of voter ID laws. But um, the other half of the conversation that, that uh, we can be having is about voter mobilization, right? So even for folks who are of lower socioeconomic status or who, you know, face various barriers to voting, whether that's an elderly people who, who have trouble getting to the polls to cast a ballot um, or, you know, it's young people who, you know, 
haven't voted before and are somewhat apathetic. Um, the number one, like most important predictor as to whether or not people will turn out to vote is whether or not they've been asked, right? Whether or not they've been contacted by uh, members of communities or community-based organizations in their communities or members of campaigns, whether or not they've been actually actively um, reached out to and asked to come cast a ballot. So even though there are things that are standing in our way to be able to actually vote, um, the uh, voter mobilization efforts can really help um, mitigate some of those um, negative impacts of institutional barriers. So um, those are, I think, the twin pillars of making of keep of having a vital democracy, both reducing fighting voter suppression and reducing barriers, but then also making sure that we're actually actively um, reaching out and asking people to come and turn out on election day. And that's particularly important for uh, minority populations and for you know rural fo- rural people of color. Excellent. So get out to vote, bring a friend, make sure you ask people to vote. That's right. That's right. Um, That's one of the best ways that you can combat the voter suppression in your communities. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time and, um, and, uh, you know, thanks again for, for chatting and, 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 and especially making time, uh, this close to the election. I really appreciate it. You're so welcome. You've been listening to flyover folk. Today's guest was Dr. Hannah Walker from Rutgers university big thanks to her for uh for giving us some time to chat today especially uh so close to the election um you can find out more about us by visiting our website flyoverfolk.com or or following us online be sure to subscribe to the podcast anywhere where you find podcasts we're on the google play uh, and itunes stores uh, so be sure to check us out there and of course big shout out to the ruralists they produced our intro you can find out more about them at northwestofnowhere.com